The most important priority we have is how to transform our live game broadcast globally with the rapidly changing media environment. And so we had this project going on before. All of a sudden, though, it's like, well, how can we bring this game to our fans globally? We only have one broadcast location. What can we do new and differently? And so the virtual fan was probably the most visible sign of that. But all of a sudden, we have fans in live behind the players. And of course, challenges came along with that. It's like in a normal arena, if a fan is misbehaving, you kick them out. And it's like, what does misbehaving mean? We had people bring goats. We had people like all those kind of things we had to deal with. But the, but the fact of the matter is we were able to have players' families right behind them. We were able to bring in fans from other countries. Welcome to The Committed Innovator where experienced innovators and unsung heroes share their triumphs and trials with our host, Eric Roth, the global leader of McKinsey's innovation and growth practice. We are so excited to welcome Amy Brooks to the Committed Innovator podcast series today. She is the first chief innovation officer of the National Basketball Association. I'd like her to actually introduce herself and tell us a little bit about what does that mean to be the first chief innovation officer of the NBA? All right. Thank you for having me, Eric. This is exciting. So Chief Innovation Officer of the NBA, what it means is I oversee innovation for four leagues, the NBA, the WNBA, the G League, and the NBA 2K League, which is our eSports League. And what that means is not me personally overseeing innovation. It means our teams and the league as a whole is focused on how can we challenge the status quo every day. I I also have another hat where I lead our team marketing and business operations group. And similar to McKinsey, it is a consulting arm that helps our teams improve their business across all aspects. And so we focus on strategy and innovation. So I'm going to put aside all the questions that my friends and my kids actually asked me to ask you just for a few moments and ask you, what is it like to be in this mix of 94 teams, multiple leagues, uh, as we all know, lots of public uh, uh, attention from time to time, and yet you're trying to drive change uh, in a world where everything's changing all the time around you. It's really a, a matter of influencing change. One of our owners, Peter Guber, likes to say that this is the most complicated business he's been in because it's live events, it's media, it's real estate, it's concessions, it's merchandise. And so how do we grow and change across all of those different dimensions? Can't just happen with one person or one team. It has to happen with every individual having that mindset. So that's that's what we like to, to emphasize. So typically a lot of our uh, companies we work with will say, well, should we centralize innovation or should we decentralize it? How do you think about that? Because success for you can't possibly be just keep everything in the center and do it yourselves. By and large, we are decentralized. I see my role and my group's role as a catalyst just to remind everyone to keep that mindset and focus on innovation, to make sure we have processes to recognize innovation. We have the Commissioner's Award for Innovation that we do every year. We have innovation campaigns that we'll do every year. And I've spent a lot of time in in my role trying to assess where the NBA should be on that spectrum because we work with companies like Pepsi and innovation takes a very different form at Pepsi than it does at a company like ours. But we are really decentralized and it is everyone having that mindset. So... 
to that point that you just made, everyone thinks a little bit differently about innovation. How do you define innovation? What does that mean for the MBA? What kinds of innovations are we talking about? It really is about challenging the status quo in everything that we do. And we have a lot of different roles at the NBA. Someone could be in charge of our broadcast. Someone could be in charge of selling tickets at a team. Someone could be in charge of our social media presence and what platforms and what channels we should be on. And each of those people have to think about every day, how can I get better? How can I challenge the status quo, do something differently? So one example of that is the Atlanta Hawks last summer when every team was playing games in the bubble, the arena was dormant. And so how can you turn the arena into a polling place for voting in the city of Atlanta? So they did that. They laid out the blueprint of how to do that with the government. And we quickly shared that with all teams. And before you knew it, we had the majority of our arenas as polling places. So that's what we look to do is take a great idea, share it quickly, and implement it in other places. So we love to explore valuable problems to solve in innovation. And I'm sure everyone's wondering how you dealt with one of the the most challenging and valuable problems you probably had to solve recently was the bubble. Global pandemic, everyone at home, people would love to see, fans would love to see basketball, I'm sure for a whole variety of reasons. How did you approach that? What was it like to solve that? Deep breath, not easy, because all of a sudden, the pandemic happened. We were the first league and possibly entity to shut down. And then it was, well, what's next? How do we bring basketball back? And and we knew we couldn't do it immediately. And we had to be patient. Like innovation a lot of times is about testing things quickly and getting things out there. Other times it's about being patient and waiting so you can implement it in the best way. And that was the case with the bubble. So during that time period where we weren't playing, because we stopped in the middle of our seasons. We're trying to engage fans via new and different ways. Uh, We had The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, come out in partnership with ESPN. But then in the back, we're running dozens, hundreds, you name it, of scenario models in how could we bring the NBA back? What format should we do? What team should be involved? where should we play, what health protocol should be in place. And it was just a massive effort. And, and you notice things change too, because when we planned the bubble and announced the bubble, it was about four weeks out and we were going to play in Orlando, Florida. At that time, Orlando was one of the lowest COVID rates in the country. Of course, by the time we get to the bubble, it's one of the highest. And so we had that to contend with as well. And, you know, we, we, we've written a lot about how the pandemic created these constraints that generated so many interesting new innovations. Could you imagine doing anything like the bubble without this massive challenge to force you to think differently? No, it, it, before the pandemic and still today, the most important priority we have is how to transform our live game broadcast globally with the rapidly changing media environment. And we know that in the future, our fans wanna watch an NBA game in a personalized way to them, in an easily accessible way. And so we had this project going on before. All of a sudden though, it's like, well, how can we bring this game to our fans globally? We only have one broadcast location. What can we do new and differently? And so that enabled us, the virtual fan in partnership with Microsoft technology was probably the most visible sign of that, but all of a sudden we have fans in live behind the players. And of course, challenges came along with that. It's like in a normal arena, if a fan is misbehaving, you kick them out. And it's like, what does misbehaving mean? We we had people bring goats. We had people like all those kind of things we had to deal with. But But the fact of the matter is we were able to have players' families right behind them. We were able to bring in fans from other countries 
right behind the players and bring our fans globally. And so testing things like that, testing new camera angles, new optics. We had 30 microphones under the court to test different sound optics. Uh, We had a rail cam running along the sideline. We still do in our broadcast today where fans get that exposure from the same view someone would have sitting courtside for a game. So we're able to test a lot of different things, which sped up this project for our next generation telecast. So it sounds like there are a lot of what we call orthodoxies that exist throughout the NBA, just practices that that are dominant based on they've worked in the past, so why why change them? Can you, can you share an example of, of one of those orthodoxies that you really took on, and how does your team sort of manage through those? Again, it's about influencing change. I'll give you an example. It's going on now, the play-in tournament. So we're about to start the NBA playoffs. In the past, we've had 16 teams make the tournament. And we tested something in the bubble, which is having the teams at the bottom of each conference, not the very bottom, but in the in the middle of making the playoffs, have a tournament to play in. And it's controversial because this is different. This is very different. But look what's happened today. On the last day of our season, almost every team playing was playing for something. They were either playing to get out of the play-in tournament, they were playing to get into the play-in tournament, or they were fighting for seeds. And it creates a whole new level of fan engagement. It played out in our ratings. We saw our ratings in May stronger than in April, stronger than in March. And a lot of times we, we see flatness there. So we wouldn't know that unless we tried it. So that one seems pretty consistent with your business model. Let's take another one that you shared, the patch, which is, you could argue, maybe a bit of a business model innovation. How did that one go? This particular example is the, the jersey patch, we called it. And several years ago, it was the notion of adding sponsorship to our jersey. And then it became all sorts of controversy. How big should it be? What will fans think? What will players think? How should the money be split, league team? Who should sell it, league team? And it took a while and, and arguably too long for us to come to the conclusion and, and a model of selling it, but it has worked. And what we were worried about, which number one is fans, and we had already had sponsorship on our G League jerseys, on our WNBA jerseys, as you know. And what we found is our fans actually wanted to wear what our players wore. And then what we saw is our teams selling deals. It wasn't just an, just a, a patch on a jersey. These are integrated partnerships with the team. And it included a lot of different global assets. And so what happened was two-thirds of the partners to our teams had never partnered with the NBA before. Two-thirds of the partners to our team for the patch were global partners. So we were helping those companies grow their brand globally while helping us, the MBA, grow our own brand. So it worked out, and we're excited to build on it. So it sounds like you have a bit of a success model that you've created, which is you know focus on metrics that matter, uh, drive stakeholder engagement, which your stakeholders are extremely varied, Always have the end goal in mind, which is the fans in your case, and then create the data, create the, the example, the story, if you will, that travels across you know, all the various entities you have to touch. How long did it take you to figure that out? I've been at the NBA 16 years. Before I came to the NBA, I was a consultant. And I've learned that you have a bow and arrow and a quiver, and you just need to pull the right arrow out of the quiver at the, whatever time it is. So you're exactly right. It, you can convince on data. You can use different forms of 
what's working in the market, what other industries are doing. And so we like to share best practices, I've always already mentioned, within our own leagues, but also within sports. But also we have to pay attention to every other industry out there that's trying to sell something to a consumer or market to a consumer because there's a lot of industries that do it better than sports, quite frankly. So you've talked a lot about when your formula works and you get the benefit of a pilot that scales across all of the various stakeholders um, that you touch. What are, what is at least one example where it didn't work and what did you learn from that? I wouldn't say this didn't work. And I want to use this example though, because we're in our 25th year of the WNBA and That's we're very amazing. proud of it. Really um, the longest standing women's professional sports league, myself as a former women's basketball player, take a lot of pride in it. But the mindset that we can always improve on it, we need more women coming to games. We need more women supporting the WNBA. We need more men coming to games and more supporting the WNBA. And we need more commercial partners Mm -hmm. as well. And we think the time is ripe for that. And that's why we're very excited about our new leadership, Kathy Engelbert, and the formulas we put in place to test new things this year. We have a Commissioner's Cup mid-season tournament. So again, I think it's a mindset of not saying something's there, so it's fine. It's saying something's there, but how can we make it even better? And that's what we're trying to do at the WNBA. So one of the things that we often explore when there's a new model that, that's not maybe achieving what everyone's aspiration hopes for it is the difference between assertions, asserting what it should be, and the assumptions of what do we have to believe to make it possible or to make it uh, reach its aspiration. What would you say are some of the big assumptions that need to be proven or disproven to help make the WNBA a success? One is around corporate spending in women's sports. 4% of all sponsorship spending today goes towards women's sports. You have to believe that there's a number higher than four, hopefully closer to 50, that is achievable. For sure. Another thing we always talk about is blockers and unlocks. Are there specific unlocks that you foresee you have to test and learn around to enable that to start to scale towards that 50% more quickly? Sure. It's this whole ecosystem of a league, it, and it starts with fans in the building. Is the building full? Is it exciting? Are the tickets selling out? Are there partnerships around the building? How is the the sport broadcast? How many people watch it? How long do they watch it for? How many countries is it broadcast for? From a player perspective, and this is one of the advantages of the NBA and the WNBA as a sport, anywhere people grow up in the world wanting to play basketball, they aspire to play in our leagues, and we have that. And so how do you use, to your point, all of these different levers to drive towards a, an area where each metric you're growing, you're growing the number of fans of the building, you're growing the broadcast, you're growing corporate partnerships, all of those elements you have to have separate goals for and try to build them up. Innovation is often used as a lever for growth. And as we think about growth for the NBA, you talked a little bit about growth in fans through some of the initiatives you're leading. What about growth uh, geographically? As many know, I I lived in China for a while and and had, as we talked about earlier, um, some experiences with the NBA trying some things out in China. And I think that's still arguably a work in progress. Where else have you, uh, whether it be China or elsewhere in the world, tried to really expand the NBA's reach to new markets? Well, China has been a focus of ours for decades, as you know. Uh, Africa is 
something we've been investing more time in lately. And in fact, we just launched our newest league, which is the Basketball Africa League, which consists of 12 club teams in different countries throughout Africa coming together. And we're excited about this because of obviously the growth potential in Africa, the nature of younger fans for the NBA in Africa, the nature of our players. We have 55 players who were either born in Africa or have at least one parent who is from Africa. And so we see the confluence of all those factors as a huge opportunity for us. And so this is the first year of the league. What it does for us, it's obviously, it's an entertainment league in itself that has global reach. It's broadcast in 215 countries, but it's also a a chance for people in Africa, basketball players in Africa, to aspire to play in a professional league there. It's important in each of these regions to really foster the development of the sport itself and having the ability to have a league where people aspire locally to play in is very compelling. So you envision at someday, sometime soon, one of these players perhaps coming and playing in the NBA. And, and I can only imagine what, what that'll do to, to boost the aspirations of those playing out in Africa. We certainly hope so. There's a former NBA player. There's several G League players in it. We actually have an entertainer, Jay Cole, who was in mm-hmm. it. And so we think there's a, a lot of potential in a variety of different ways from that league. And when you go into a market like Africa, where I, I suspect the, the number of unknowns is quite high, how do you face those? Well, the good news is we have a lot of our owners with business experience in Africa. And so our owners, our GMs, we've leveraged that knowledge and experience and we have a guiding subcommittee of owners that help us with our entry into Africa. So that's been very helpful as well as we have local leadership there, but it's complicated. This is, Africa is certainly complicated, but we're very excited about what's ahead. So speaking of excitement and technology, we probably should talk about NFTs for a few minutes. <laughs> probably. And all the excitement and uh, that technology has brought to the to the NBA, un- probably unexpectedly. And we Don't, probably should say, by the way, it's a non-fungible token. Just for those people who don't know what an NFT is. It's a non-fungible token, <laughs> but it is certainly in the media lately. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about testing. This was definitely a test. So tell us a little bit about the test of the NFT and, and what you were testing and what happened as a result, which was a bit of a surprise. Sure. We launched in beta the end of... 2020, in a few short months, NBA Top Shot, for those of you who aren't aware, it is the notion of digital highlights as collectibles. Mm -hmm. And they're sold as packs. You can buy, they come three to seven moments in a pack. Um, And there's varied levels. If something only has 50, it's worth more. If something has 10,000, it's worth less. And you collect them. And interestingly, this idea stemmed from an innovation campaign that we did in 2018 with all of our leagues and all of our teams and, and said, posed the question, what new business should the NBA get into? And one of the submissions that ended up winning was around blockchain. And it wasn't novel. A lot of companies looking into blockchain. But what we thought back then is the lowest hanging fruit for us, and there's a variety of different ways that, that blockchain could help our business, was digital collectibles. And at that same time, we saw this thing called CryptoKitties, going crazy and said to ourselves, like, what is going on? Why are people paying for these digital cats? And so we ended up focusing on that area, which just helped drive focus. Not that we wouldn't have done this partnership anyway. How did you spot CryptoKitties? Because oftentimes what's interesting about what we said is there's these submissions that happen and it's like an idea and people say, oh, this is an important technology, but they don't see the change in the marketplace occur and miss it. 
But you saw it. How, how did you well, spot it? Well, and this came, and what was unique about this campaign is the majority of ideas came from people who were director and below at the NBA. And so it really focused our global partnerships team and all credit to them for executing. But we did this partnership with Dapper Labs and this marketplace in the last few months has done over $500 million in gross sales. The vast majority of that on the secondary market. So similar to a ticketing marketplace. And and then it's generated over a million new customers, most of whom were not customers of the NBA before. It's and hard so, to find examples of brand new businesses that scale that fast with a unknown technology like blockchain. Everyone says, oh, do blockchain. And, and then coming back to the point of innovation, then it's, well, what's next? Well, we certainly want to make NBA Top Shot a success and very focused on that. But we also want our whole ecosystem to be able to innovate. And so we quickly created some rules for our teams to be able to test some NFTs on their own. A few of them are testing NFTs around ticketing. Mm-hmm. So the notion of either buying a commemorative ticket, we always to keep the tickets in our drawer, right? And like, there's this is a new world where those tickets of a special game that you went to it could hold a lot of value, not just economically, but personal intrinsic value too, too. So we're focused on testing a whole lot of things there. So that's a great example of a, what we call collisions between a technology, your business model, fan engagement, which is sort of the problem you continue to solve. There's some other examples of you using technology and, and combining it with your business model in new ways. It might be worth hearing a little bit about home court. And, yes. And what's that, what, what is all Eric, that about? Eric, I've been waiting for you to ask me about this one. I, I get a lot of different technologies sent my way. When I was first shown this, I said immediately to myself, I wish I had this growing up as the person, <laughs> yeah. the girl on their driveway shooting hundreds of shots. We lived on a driveway, the ball would roll down the hill. I got to count my shots, all those things. This is a mobile AI technology. It's a mobile app. They've, they were fast companies, most innovative sports technology of 2020. And it tracks your shot. It tracks your dribbles. And of course, it's benefited dur- during the pandemic. It's, it had over a billion dribbles tracked and 100 million shots globally. And so from a fan perspective, you're able to practice, you know, my kids who are 10 and 12, it gamifies dribbling. But what it has also done to us, for us, besides just the fan, is we have this challenge of scouting basketball players globally. And you talk about scalability. Mm -hmm. This is very challenging to scale. So we developed this product, NBA Global Scout, with Home Court, where someone can test your vertical leap, your lateral quickness, obviously your height and things like that, just the basic foundational elements. And we actually had our first player from Indonesia join our NBA Global Academy just last month. And this person was scouted, six foot eight player from Indonesia, scouted via technology. So so basically what you're saying is that anyone can apply for the NBA from their court in their driveway at home. Anyone can apply for the NBA you from heard their court first. in their driveway at home. You may have an advantage if you are taller or quicker or shoot better. But I'm yes, not that assuming is you're making any comments about me and those qualification criteria, but um, we'll all wish and hope that one day we can make it to the court. Uh, live in the arena, just uh, to to enjoy all of that excitement and fandom that you that you described. Um, so to switch gears, so given all your experiences, what has been the hardest thing to get right? What sticks out in terms of your experience of what was unexpectedly difficult? Getting new things done is always challenging, and so we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about NFTs. We've talked about new leagues. And 
each of those things has its own challenges and time to market. And so the hardest thing, I think, is identifying the right time to market. Because the inclination is to, to do things faster, but at the same time, you need to prove why is this a good idea? And you only can prove that by waiting longer and getting more information. And so it's finding the balance between those two. We tend to, to test things and, and we balance data with good instincts and input from our owners. The NBA 2K League is a good example. We saw the success of NBA 2K as one, one of the top sports games in the world. We saw esports coming on. We quickly announced an esports league. So it's balancing time to market with all the other things because just there's no perfect decision. And how do you get permission to do that? So you quickly, you said, oh, we saw it, we quickly launched it. Well, I think most chief innovation officers sitting around the world would say, yeah, right. If I saw something today, it would take me six months to quickly go after it. it sounds like you're able to it, jump on things the, much faster than let's, others. Let's be perfectly clear. In our model, it's a little different than, than most of corporate America. The NBA, the league reports to our 30 teams. So Adam Silver and, and all of us report to a board of governors. That's step one is let's have a plan. Let's run it by the board of governors. And quite frankly, our owners are very committed to innovation. They want growth. They want new things. And so we've had the support of a very entrepreneurial ownership group on these efforts. So is it safe to say that between Adam and these entrepreneurial owners, the priority of innovation and sort of the culture and philosophy of where the MBA is going is very much let's try things out, let's experiment, let's see if they work, and and then if, go for it if they do, and if they don't, quickly quickly move on to the next one. It, it, it is certainly not throw everything on the wall until something sticks. So how do you decide? Like where's the, what's the what's the the, the the limiting factor of what goes? And what well, there's certainly a balance. Of course, you have to do the due diligence of like what's the upside to what you're doing. And we spend a lot of time on the numbers and laying that out, but there's also the the unknown. And, and we look to test some of these different things and we look to test it, it quickly. We have a, a team in the G League that we just launched this year called Team Ignite. And we've signed younger elite basketball players to that team who would have otherwise gone on and become one and dones or, or gone to other countries to play. Again, this is a, a great test for us because we recognize the pathway to elite youth to the NBA is, is fragmented in a lot of ways, and we can help with that. But these don't make these easy decisions either because we know it's, it's hard to prioritize sometimes. Every company faces that. And if anything, we, we have a lot of different things that we can go after, and that's a continually a challenge is prioritization. So as you think about your own job, what and your activities that you do, what's the percent breakdown? You know, how much is creating versus stakeholder management versus executing versus whatever else you'd put on that list? With my own job, I wouldn't say I'm sitting in a room creating all of the time, but we are spending a lot of time thinking about how to do things new and differently. And, and I'm in a lot of discussions with these different groups. Again, it's not just the group I manage, it's all of our teams. We're always out there doing workshops with our teams, tackling, we'll take the notion of bringing fans back in our building, full buildings next year. One of our priorities is how should the game entertainment experience change? How should it look new and different than it was before? How should our arena operations experience be more seamless? You're not gonna wanna sit in a line. You're gonna want your food hot quicker. You're going to want your Wi-Fi mm -hmm. to work. All of those things we know we need to raise raise the bar. And so that's an example. So is a lot of it collecting the ideas, blueprinting or, or coming up with some sort of playbook and then blasting it out to everyone saying this is, this is the way forward? 
It's what I would put it slightly differently. I would say one of the secret sauce advantages, if there is one for the NBA, is the collaborative relationships among all of our teams and with the team in the league and that foundation of trust. David Stern said this years ago, even though our teams compete against each other on the court, they should collaborate off the court because what works in Atlanta could work in Charlotte, could work in Toronto. So that openness of being able, being a vice president of ticket sales and calling up another vice president of ticket sales to share an idea of submitting a best practice to us and speaking about it at a team workshop. Like we want to give our teams the platform for that sharing. So that way it will spread quicker. So Amy, in your role, I mean, you're constantly innovating and and look, the last year has been extraordinary for so many reasons. And one of the things that sports does is really bring people together. And I'm just wondering, how can innovation help be a force for bringing people together? You know, Eric, the notion of bringing people together in sport, of course, this is something Nelson Mandela has said, many people have said is, is sport as a unifying force. And it's been more true than ever this year, as I think everyone has seen. And it's been very much a source of pride for me to be part of this league in terms of our social impact efforts in the bubble and as well as just ongoing. We've created an NBA foundation focused on economic empowerment. We have an NBA social justice coalition with our owners, our players, and and the notion of driving equality and using our platform to drive equality in society, not just here in the U.S., but through our global efforts, through the Basketball Africa League, it's something we take very, very seriously. And that also extends just to the notion, of course, of diversity and inclusion, too, which as a woman in sports, let's be honest, there, there aren't as many of us as we think there should be. But it's a focus for the NBA and a priority. And again, the WNBA, 25 years, our efforts to just elevate. We have female referees now. Mm-hmm. We have female assistant coaches now. And this is someone, as someone who works in sports, I remember thinking back, you know, because I played basketball and I think to myself, would I have gone that path and been a general manager or a coach if, if it was open to me? I didn't see any women down that path at the time. And so, our efforts along with our teams on that front are just tremendously important and we're excited about what's ahead. Thanks for listening. You can find a transcript of this conversation at mckinsey.com slash committed innovator. We look forward to having you join us again soon for the next episode of the committed innovator.